It's Motorcycle Men! Hello everybody and welcome. This is the Motorcycle Men. I am Ted and I am here by myself here at the V-Twin Cafe in the corner booth. And today, this is our season 2 episode number 32 episode. Actually, this is our 48th episode in the history of Motorcycle Men. So we're gearing up for the big 5-0 coming up. Uh, today, we have a fantastic interview with author and world motorcycle traveler Sam Manicom, uh, the author of Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, and Distant Suns, and his latest book, Totilas and Totems. Uh, Sam uh, basically goes over his journey around the world uh, through Africa and Asia, and of course, South America and the United States and North America. So uh, please, by all means, enjoy this interview. I highly suggest if you have the opportunity, please go to audible.com, download his audiobooks. Uh, or go to your favorite bookstore and purchase the books. You might want to try Amazon as well. Uh, if you have difficulty doing it, Sam has a great idea on how to get a hold of these books. Uh, so listen to the interview and enjoy. Uh, again, I am Ted, and this is The Motorcycle Man. Enjoy the interview. All right, joining me now here on The Motorcycle Men uh, from uh, the United Kingdom. Do you prefer the United Kingdom, Britain, or England? I'd say it's a bit of everything, and at the moment, I think because of Brexit, most of us are a little bit confused over what it's going to be in the future. So let's go with the UK for the moment. From the UK, author of four, now four travel books, uh, world-renowned traveler, Mr. Sam Manicom. Welcome to the Motorcycle Man, Sam. It's it's really great to join you guys, and thanks for inviting me, Ted. Much appreciated. Uh, This is honestly an honor uh, for me uh, to have you on because I have uh, listened to all the audiobooks uh, that you've produced so far. Absolutely fantastic. Love the stories. Uh, Of course, love listening to everything about the writing. So now what I'll do is I'm just going to quiz you and I'll let you run on on it. Uh, Tell tell us about your journey. Uh, First first question I want to ask you is prior to writing Into Africa, uh, were you riding a motorcycle? Uh, did you ride, or was was it a part of your life? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Not at all. Um, actually, my parents had banned me from riding a bike when I was on my <laughs> teens, and they were probably right, because I've always been a bit of a boundary stretcher. Um, and I found other ways to travel, including by bicycle and hitchhiking and bus and train and sailing. Um, and I did keep quiet as far as my parents were concerned about the more edgy aspects of those ways of travel. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So, so, but which leads me to when you finally decided to make these journeys by motorcycle, certainly into Africa when you first started, how was that received by your friends and family? And my friends thought I was nuts. Um, <laughs> I didn't have any friends who were motorcyclists. Oh. So, although they, um, most of them were travelers, um, they knew what a, a leap it was to, to learn to ride a bike. And I'd given myself a pretty limited amount of time to do it um, before setting off. Um, and, of course, when I told them that I was going to ride the length of Africa, where you can imagine the chuckles and the expressions that were going around the table in the pub when I announced <laughs> what I was going to do next, because they knew that I didn't even have a, um, a bike license. But they knew that I'd go through it, um, through with it. And I think um, that actually most of them thought that this was a trip that I'd fall flat on my face from. But, um, yeah, well, um, beer, pubs, um, extreme <laughs> ideas, you can imagine the lunacy that was going on. We were being a bit noisy. I can imagine. <laughs> um, but as far as my family was concerned, you know, the hardest thing was telling my mother 
that um, I was going to ride a bike through Africa because, you know, I was very conscious that they'd been serious when I was in my teens and they said, look, you know, we really, really don't want you to be riding a motorcycle. We think you'll kill yourself. Um, so once I'd made my mind up to do this, it, it was, you know, I wasn't daunted about anything else. I was daunted about telling my mother and she was absolutely brilliant. She listened, she looked at me and she said, well, I knew something was bubbling. And then straight in with, what can I do to help? And that, to me, was just absolutely awesome, um, brilliant. And as far as my sisters were concerned, I never really asked them, you know. Um, but I suspect they probably just thought, oh, he's at it again. Um, <laughs> and uh, let me get on with it. <laughs> it's funny because when my brothers and I decide we're going to take a motorcycle ride, we're going to go out, uh, she goes through the, the standard routine, the comments of how to travel, be safe, watch out for this, watch out for that. And it's like there's like, there's like a routine that she goes through. So I kind of uh-huh. understand what you're, what you're going through. Um, now, when you decided to, to do these adventures, did you, as far as it goes for the bike that you chose, did you already have that in mind or is this something you were thinking about? Gosh, you know, I, I didn't have a bike in mind and it was, it was a major concern for me because I had no experience riding a motorcycle. And as I said, none of my friends were bikers. Um, I didn't have anybody to ask, and um, this is uh, pre-forums and, and that sort of thing. So whatever I was learning, I was learning from magazines. And choosing the bike, well, you know, I was, I was just totally confused. Um, now, I know this makes me sound a bit like an alcoholic, but um, <laughs> pub, pubs are good places to have conversations. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, I was in, in the pub with my friends, and we were talking about um, the trip and how it was going to work, and um, we had magazines all over the table. And um, each magazine was saying, well, you know, this bike's the best thing for this, and this bike's the best thing for overlanding, and blah de blah And I was looking at them, and I was just getting more and more confused because, well, as far as I was concerned, that blue one, well, that looked like quite a nice bike. Perhaps I should have the blue one. Um, but, you know, we had... A, the, Again, we were being a little bit noisy, but um, this was a pub where you could be. And um, there were a couple of guys sitting on the table next door to us, and they were listening in on the conversation. I was conscious of them doing it, but after a while they joined in, and one of the guys just leant across and said, Hey, Sam, come on. What bike are you going to take? Make your mind up. You've got to do that. And I said, oh, I just, I really don't have a clue. And he came straight out with, um, forget that lot take a BMW R80 GS they're bulletproof and what clinched it for me was when his friend then leant round and said yeah they're blooming idiot proof and all and I thought yep that's the bike for me then <laughs> pretty awesome motorcycles do need something like that right <laughs> mm. well I mean they were right as well because you know I got shot at a few times and I don't claim to be anything other than an idiot so they were right <laughs> as far as goes for your trip were you inspired by uh, Jupiter's Travels that uh, Ted Simon had written Gosh, you know, I would love to know how many people Ted Simon's Jupiter's Travels um, has inspired uh, to go traveling. Um, I read mine, uh, the, my copy for the first time when I was working in Greece on one of my trips. Um, and I was working um, during the evening in a restaurant waiting on tables. At night time, um, after the, the evening job, I was um, DJ in a disco, which was a very funny thing to do, but that's another story. Um, but a couple of um, regulars at um, my set of tables, one night towards the end of their holiday, said to me, um, do you know, we've got a friend and he's called Ted Simon and he's got a book out that's called Jupiter's Travels. We think you'd enjoy it. Would you like us to send you a copy? Well, I'd never heard of Ted Simon, but hey, you know, if he was a, a traveler and 
these two thought that I would be interested, then why not? So I said, right. yeah, well, that'd be great. Thanks very much. Although there was a little bit of me that didn't really expect uh, the book to arrive. But yeah, six weeks later, a copy of Jupiter's Travels arrived. I devoured it. <laughs> but then I put it away. Um, and I didn't think about it for, gosh, probably another 10, 12 years. Uh, but those, the seeds that Jupiter's Travels planted um, must have been planted firmly in the back of my mind because the first um, six months of my trip down through Africa, I was pretty much following um, the Ted Simon's route. Oh. And uh, okay. I actually had a copy of Jupiter's Travels with me and it was really interesting to sit down um, every week and read about where Ted had ridden and um, to match up my observations with his observations for that part of the world. So that was a rather long-winded answer to, yeah, I kind of guess it did influence me, although at the time, in the build-up to it, I wasn't aware of it. It was only when we were actually on the road that I was aware of how much it had affected me. And I would still love to know how many people have hit the road on long journeys as a result of that book. All right. What, now, was this, uh, the planning of this, of this, this trip, was this... Uh, based on that inspiration or was it more just a need of personal adventure um personal de- adventure oh really okay now with regard to into africa which was your first book how much planning went into the route of that journey or did you just pick a direction and go or did you basically just follow ted simon's route during the first six weeks uh after i've given i'd given my notice in um, I spent that six weeks starting to sell everything I'd got, my house, car, furniture, clothes, book, TV, everything else. And I passed my bike test at the six-week stage. Wow. Now, up until that stage, all of my preparation was to go down the west side of Africa. I was born in uh, the Belgian Congo, which was subsequently called um, Zaire. And when my, I was 10 years old, my parents uh, moved back to the UK for various reasons, including two revolutions that they'd lived through. Um, but I kind of guess that Africa I chose because I wanted to see whether my childhood memories were as, as strong as my mind said that they were. For example, the way the ground smells uh, at the end of the dry season and the first rains hit it and the sounds of um, the jungle drums talking. Uh, th- those sorts of things now were my memories clear so that spurred me to, to go down through Africa and particularly down through um, the west side but just as I passed my test everything went pear-shaped in Algeria and all the borders in northwest Africa closed and oh. no one knew when they'd, um, they'd open again so I spent my last six weeks of my notice period planning the eastern side and I later discovered that no one had been that way north to south on a bike for 20 years due to the war in Ethiopia but I didn't have a clue about that or I was more concerned uh, um, about um, the arguments that were happening um, in various different places and whether I was actually going to be able to get a visa Um, so most of the planning that I had done was on what was the weather going to be like because I didn't want to be riding through the Sahara in um, the middle of the summer Um, what countries I'd need visas for and how long those visas lasted. You know, some countries you uh, you can only get a visa for a month and others you can get three months. Some countries, the visas start running as soon as they're issued to you and other countries, the visas start running as soon as you roll into the country. So there are all those sorts of things uh, to learn. Um, 
it was also things like what on earth's a carne and what was it going to do about food and water and how was it going to kit the bike out and what was it going to do to protect the bike from damage and learning about mechanics because you know i didn't have a clue and <laughs> what tires was i i likely to need and how was i going to get from england to france and then from greece to egypt and what maps was i going to use you can just imagine from this sort of thing i crammed a huge amount into a very short space of time and actually i probably didn't do any of it very well <laughs> yeah, i guess you learn through experience right <laughs> yeah um because i traveled a little bit before i knew not to be afraid of people and i knew that if i took it slowly and gently then i was going to make less mistakes and of course i knew that if i did make a mistake well i'd be looking at it and thinking well that was a pretty stupid thing to do you won't do that again will you so <laughs> It was a case of, of that knowledge, but it was also I knew that I needed to find a way to balance out my ignorance on, on the bike. Um, so I did that by getting really fit. Um, by the time I was ready to go, I was running 10 miles every morning before work. Oh, and yeah. um, that, that fitness, I know, stood me in very, very good stead. And the number of times I came close to dropping the bike, for example, but because I was strong... Um, I managed to keep it upright, and well, yeah, that was flying by the seat of my pants, but it seemed logical, and most of what I did in the preparation stage was just following what felt like common sense and logic well did you how much experience on the bike did you have before you began the trip but once you planning once you started your planning and then you actually did the trip, how much actual experience on the bike did you have? Um, I passed my bike test in six weeks, and six weeks after that, I was sitting at the edge of the Sahara, wow. looking south, thinking, <laughs> Sam, you bloody idiot, what have you done this time? <laughs> so, uh, was there any apprehension with regard to planning of your trip and basically riding? The riding? No, I guess not. Um, it was. I was more bothered about whether I would be able to get the visas that I needed to be able to go north to south. Um, so Egypt um, was supposed to be relatively easy. Sudan was a problem because there was a war going on uh, between the north and the south, and um, the west of the country was very edgy. Ethiopia had had a war going on for 20 years, but the rumours were that um, the war was going to be, was coming to an end. It was just about to finish, which was why, you know, I went that way. At the same, at that particular time, the British um, Foreign Office was saying about the Congo or Zaire, under no circumstances should British citizens travel in um, Zaire. Whilst for Ethiopia, they were saying we don't recommend that British citizens should travel there. So I took that as a well, you're not telling me I can't, so I'll have a go. <laughs> and um, as far as Sudan was concerned, well, I didn't need to go into the south, and I thought that if I just use my common sense and um, avoid what I could find out with the troubled areas, then I'd, I'd be okay. So I wasn't that bothered about um, what was going to happen. It was more a case of can I get the paperwork I need. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now. This this is going to be totally off off the off the path, but uh, with regard to wildlife, mm. did you encounter any, and was that all concern to you? Yeah, I did. You know, one of the most wonderful experiences was riding uh, through Kenya, heading towards Uganda, and a herd of zebra ran across the road right in front of me, Ooh. and it was as if I'd just ridden through the screen of a television. Um, <laughs> 
but this was me live and not only um, was I feeling all of the temperature changes as I was doing that I could smell everything I could hear everything and I it was one of those pinch yourself moments where you just think this is me I'm riding a bike through Africa uh, but I did have quite a few others. There was one day um, I was sitting on a dirt track again in Kenya and um, I was just checking my map and having a drink of water and about 15 feet away from me, um, three elephants just wandered out of the bush and stood there. Wow. And fortunately, I was, very, I was downwind of them, so they couldn't smell, um, they couldn't smell me. Wow. Um, so we just sat and um, I watched them and they ripped bits off trees and chewed them and eventually they, they wandered off. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> so, I, I, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, there were, there were a couple of times when um, things did get a little bit edgy. There were very similar circumstances with a rhino, oh. um, exactly the same thing. And these guys have got a very um, good sense of smell and excellent hearing, but very poor eyesight. And I was downwind of this guy again when he wandered out of the bush. And he didn't have a clue that I was there until the engine on my bike, as it was cooling, went dit, 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 and that was it. And this guy just turned around, and he was pouring the ground, and I thought, right, I think I'll leave now. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess it's safe to say that the motorcycle did provide you the experience you hoped it would have through Africa. Yeah, very much so. And it was getting me to places where this sort of thing was going to happen. You know, I did wild camp um, a lot as I was going down through Africa. Um, but I, I really didn't camp where I knew there was going to be significant risk. I did camp a lot by villages and places like that. But I'd also talked to a very experienced game warden about what to do in the bush. And, for example, what do I do if, if I find myself suddenly confronted by a lion? And it, it, this is, t to me, part of the sheer joy of riding down a continent like Africa, finding out about all of this sort of stuff. And I'd obviously picked the right guy because he was telling me things like, you know, stand still, stand tall, and don't look it in the eyes. And if you show any fear or you run, well, you're stuffed because these guys can run for about 50 miles an hour. Um, and they said to me, look, you know, if its tail is up and it's stiff, then it is hunting you. So if that's the case, then jump up and down and wave your arms above your head. If you've got a cloth, wave that. And then you know, just back off very slowly, still facing the lion. And if it moves, then you freeze. When it's in still, then you start backing off again. So this sort of stuff for me was just um, a sheer joy to learn about. But was I afraid of it? Actually, no, I wasn't, but I have to admit, my mother thinks that I've got a, a large streak of stupidity, so that's probably involved. <laughs> I can completely understand. <laughs> um, uh, now, you, uh, this was uh, your first book was uh, Into Africa, and then you, from, you left Africa, and then you went to Australia. Is that, that's correct, right? Mm, that's right. Uh, that's where you began Under Asian Skies, which is your second book. Mm -hmm. uh, now, did you find that the journey through Australia and Asia became more taxing on you than the Africa trip? No, I didn't. Um, just very different. Oh. Each continent uh, has its own set of challenges. Uh, there are a new set of rules um, for each continent and sometimes for each area that you ride through. Um, for, and Asia was the most um, colorful and culturally diverse part of the world that I've ever traveled through. And each time you cross a border, things change quite dramatically. And you have to learn those rules. The food's different, the clothes different, the accent, um, the language may be the same, but the accent is different. Um, and finding places to stay changes, the climate can change, 
the altitude and so on. And always the rules of the road change. So just arriving in Australia, um, new driving conditions, new rules of the road, new laws. And of course, um, I am a disaster magnet and um, <laughs> that always throws a spanner in the works. Um, you, you remember the story where I um, get um, hammered um, <laughs> yeah. from the side on an Australian um, dual-laned highway yeah, um, and I'm rescued by Australian Hells Angels. <laughs> yeah, that, that must have been uh, a high point of your trip there. <laughs> well, you know, lying on the ground with the bike on top of me and in the central reservation, petrol spewing out all over me. At least my legs were cold from the evaporation. That was a good bit. <laughs> but, um, you know... D- you, you don't laugh at Hell's Angels. And yeah. there I was lying on the ground and looking up at this guy, and I was really struggling not to laugh. But that started when he leant down with um, a German Second World War helmet on his head with two cow horns sticking out the side. And, and the first thing he said to me was, Good day, mate. How's it going? And I thought, Now I'm in Australia. I know I'm in Australia. <laughs> um, now, here is where you, you this is where you met, uh, you met Burgett. Because most of the time you've been you've been riding solo this entire time, and now you meet up with Burgett. Now, did that make your uh, journey more tolerable? And tell us a little bit about Burgett. Okay, um, Burgett um, was riding a bicycle through New Zealand, and I dropped down from New, from Australia into New Zealand. I had intended to go there on on my bike, but um, a couple of days before I went down, I I broke the bike. (laughs) And so um, with a cheapo, non-refundable flight, I ended up flying down. Now, for me, the bike was always um, a way to get in adventures and not the specific reason for it. So I wasn't um, heartbroken about this happening, although all of the time that I was traveling around New Zealand, I was thinking, wow this corner would be good on a bike or wow this road would be magic on the bike so there was that but I, I hitchhiked around and I was working as I went and um, I ended up in a, a small backpackers hostel in the town of Nelson which is at the the northern end of South Island and um, Birgit was riding a bicycle through New Zealand and she came to stay one night and um, she wasn't looking for a boyfriend certainly not one like me and i wasn't looking for a girlfriend but well you know how it happens we kind of got on and um she came on the back of my bike in india and nepal for uh for three months and we just got on phenomenally well and i found that by traveling with her um all sorts of opportunities opened up such as while I was traveling on my own in India, um, I was kept very much at arm's length um, by the women. But as soon as I was traveling with Birgit, then a whole new side of Indian family life was opened up because as a woman, Birgit was invited into the kitchen where she was shown how food was cooked and you know all of those sorts of things. So I was then able to learn from those things. Um, so I don't know about more tolerable, just um, very different. But it was great fun having two sets of eyes oh, to see what was going on. You know, we'd often get to the end of the day, and um, she had seen probably fifty percent of a completely different story from the day to the day that I'd seen, and vice versa. Right. So it was um, it was really entertaining every night, swapping the stories of the things that we'd observed, sharing the fun. Right now, now she did not ride a motorcycle at that point, did she? No, she didn't. No, now did she? And I don't recall if she, in the second book, if she actually did start riding uh, in Asia with you. No, no, she didn't. So no, she came on the back of my bike wow. um, for three months. Wow. Did that, uh, as far as with her on the back of the bike, did that change your riding habits, your uh, handling of the bike? Did, did that raise any concerns with you? 
I wasn't sure if I was a good enough rider to have a pillion on the back of the bike, so I was very nervous. And by this time, I'd been on the road for two and a half years. Okay. Um, but I, most of the time, other than giving locals a, a little lift here and there, um, Kenyan policeman one time, um, I, <laughs> I wasn't sure how it was going to be with another person on the back of the bike and... Um, their luggage too but Birgit was a superb pillion passenger she listened to what I said and to me the common sense um, instructions to her were listen just sit and relax don't try and do anything don't try and lean Um, just every time I go round a corner um, look over the shoulder that of that corner that we're going into and then the other corner you know other direction do the same thing and that just move head movement is going to be enough and she listened to that and it worked phenomenally well and we very quickly um learned to ride together um very easily i mean it helped that she has uh, she was an experienced traveler so she knew the importance of um traveling light so she had a minimal amount of kit so it was just her weight and hey she's only five foot and a half five foot one so <laughs> there wasn't a huge amount of weight there so it was it was great she was she was terrific now i know you, you as tra- traveling uh, solo even when you have uh, pillion you did have food of your own on board with you i assume now mm. how was that did you, you have any difficulty adapting to the food available to you along this trip yes and no um <laughs> I always carried um, three days' worth of, of food on the bike because that meant that whatever adventures, um, possibilities popped up, I could head off out into them and have a go and see what would happen without worrying about have I got enough food. So I always carried that. But for me, part of the joy of travel is uh, the local food. And, well, in Egypt, for example, I learned a very good lesson. If it looks like slime green... <laughs> It doesn't mean that there's still not a very good reason that it's on the menu. And if the locals eat it, well, then it's got to be okay, so I should at least try it. But over the years on the road, I had uh, locusts, sheep's eyeballs, and um, dog's testicles. I didn't realize what they were, by the way, until afterwards. Um, You know, in some parts of the world, dogs are bred just as we um, uh, breed pigs for food. Um, but uh, the dogs have a lot more feed- freedom than we are, allow our pigs. So it's just a, a way of thinking in, in different countries. Wow. But um, amazing steaks and Thai curry in, in Thailand, awesome. Um, but sometimes the food is is just a stodgy stomach filler. And much of Africa, for example, they, they make um, f- um, sort of um, mashed potato equivalent out of um, maize meal. Um, You have it in the morning for porridge and you have it in the evening much stiffer than that as um, a replacement for potatoes. But I think probably the the tasteless or the least inspiring thing I've ever eaten was in Uganda. And um, they take a particular type of green banana um, called the matoke banana and um, they steam it in banana leaves. And to be quite honest, this pale, glutinous-looking lump of stodge that ends up on your plate... Um, is completely uninspiring and for me the taste was that each time I put a lump in my mouth it tasted like I was eating um, I was chewing nicotine so you can imagine I wasn't that enthralled by it but um, you know there were rules to the road of of eating and the key rule is um, eat where the locals eat Um, if there are half a dozen restaurants and three of them haven't got hardly any customers in then 
don't go there. The locals know where the food's going to be bad. And if, if a place is buzzing and hopping, well, there's a very good chance that the food that you're going to get is fresh because there are so many people. Uh-huh. And, of course, there's a very good chance that they're not going to give you some sort of lurgy. But, um, I mean, there are all sorts of oddball things that you can eat. But um, if you're a little bit more fastidious and a little bit more cautious about eating, you can get eggs and chips just about everywhere. Right. Although I always recommend try the local nosh. <laughs> I, 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 I assume that you lost weight during these trips. <laughs> yeah, I always set off on a trip um, probably a stone and a half heavier than I normally am. I, quit, I, eat, I make a point of eat, eating very well because that way um, the first time I get sick, which you inevitably do, then um, I've got some reserves that I can get rid of. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my travelling weight is probably about two stone less than my normal Western everyday life weight. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, getting back to the motorcycle, um, mm. how did the travel by motorcycle differ in Asia from that of Africa? And did you get have more mechanical or roadway challenges along the way? I think the traffic in Asia is the biggest difference. Um, it's 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 the quantity of traffic in some places, uh, but it's also that many Asian uh, drivers um, are believers in fate. So in other words, if today is the day that I'm going to die, nothing that I can do is going to stop that happening. So I might as well just get on with my day as fast as I possibly can. And in, in India, for example, you run the risk of permanently ending up as a bonnet ornament on a, a bus or a, or a truck wow. because these guys put their feet to the floor and they just go for it. I think my record in one particular day was literally having to jump off the side of the road 12 times. Really? Uh, and if I hadn't, then, um, yeah, I would have been that rather large fly splatted up against the windscreen or across the front of the bonnet. Wow. Now, as far as it goes for mechanical issues, did you have many uh, more in Asia than you did in Africa? or? No, not really. Uh, I think one of the keys of doing an overlanding um, trip is that whenever you get somewhere where you can work on your bike, you give it a, a thorough going over so that everything is in as tip-top condition as it possibly can be. Because that way, when you're in the gnarlier, more difficult areas, the chances of something breaking down are much smaller. But you still get the wear and tear things. Um, for example, my steering head bearings went at one stage, and that was quite an interesting thing to do because with I had minimal, minimal um, mechanical knowledge. Um, I, I knew how to, to do the valve clearances and to chain oil, change oil and air filters and how to change cables. Oh, and I, I knew I could change um, uh, the tyres because I had a bicycle and I knew it wasn't going to be that much difference. Yeah, well, you learn, don't you? <laughs> um, but uh, changing steering head bearings, I didn't have a clue. I had a manual, and but I didn't have the tools for doing it. Wow. And so um, along with a chap that I met, we made the tools oh, okay. um, using a local welder. And that was part of the adventure. It wasn't a disaster. It was part of the adventure, as was hunting out suitable bearings to go in there. I, th- I, I don't consider things like that as being a negative part of a trip. They're just um, an unexpected adventure that end up introducing you to different people or making you go to different parts of town and so on. So, yeah, it's huh. good. Well, at the risk of seeming like a stupid question, how many BMW dealers or uh, maintenance people were you able to come across along this? 
gosh, I didn't count. Uh, <laughs> my, the first one that I came across was in Kenya, and that was quite good uh, for, for a couple of reasons. The first was that uh, I'd broken the subframe on the bike, and the bike was still under warranty. Because wow. I was such a novice, I'd bought a brand new bike. I thought, well, yeah, you know, I, I could have been sold a dog with five legs <laughs> uh, if I tried to buy a second-hand bike. Um, so I broke the subframe and that was just due, due to the roads and the amount of weight that I was carrying I had far too much stuff when I started um, but also the speed I was faulty it was clocking up something between kilometres and miles which made me feel like the fuel consumption on the bike was ridiculously small fortunately I had a 43 litre or 9 gallon tank on the bike so wow. um, my, my ignorance as far as the reality concern, was concerned wasn't uh, a disaster but by the time I got to Kenya then yeah it needed to be sorted and so um, they were very good to find but um, there were very few BMW dealerships in um, the developing world countries but one of the reasons that I decided to go with um, the bulletproof and idiot proof um, concept was because <laughs> in a lot of developing world countries, the police forces used um, the old airheads BMWs. And I thought, well, you know, if, if um, things really go wrong, then I've just got to find um, police headquarters wherever and hopefully I'll find somebody who can help me work out what the problem is and maybe even have the spare part. Oh, there you go. So there was some logic to that. Now, uh, moving on to your third book, Distant Sons, which I just finished. Uh, this is where your back injury became a major part of the trip. Uh, did you feel that the motorcycle was a contributor to the back pain, or was it more road conditions, or was it just an, something that's been just building up over time? I slipped my first two discs just as I was leaving Australia, and they were down to playing a lot of rugby in my youth, Ooh. and then the various forms of manual labour on the different trips. Um, for example, in Australia, I was uh, one of the jobs I did was picking uh, cherry tomatoes, and for anybody who's seen cherry tomatoes growing, well, they'll know that on a farm they grow in long rows, rather like uh, grapes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the cherries hang in bunches underneath the vines. And when you're picking them, you're picking the yellow and orange ones because those are the ones that can still get to market before they're too, too ripe. Yeah. So you're crawling around underneath these vines, um, filling your bucket. And it takes a hell of a long time to fill a bucket, I can tell you. I'll never look a cherry tomato in the face again without respect for it. Um, uh, but then you're sort of suddenly standing up, heaving the but and moving on to the next spot which can just be a yard away but each time you're stretching picking and you're working at a pace then you're doing damage to your back and so that actually caused me a lot of problems but the third disc went wrong as a result of the roaring 40s when we were heading southwards across patagonia and south in southern argentina um you know, as a schoolboy, I'd read about Roaring Forties, and with a little bit of sailing that I'd done, I knew how powerful the winds were, but it had never occurred to me that these winds roar across the land first before they roar across the sea. And they they do roar. It's a, it's a really good name for them because these winds aren't a steady blast. They're constant, really hefty gusts. And when you're riding a bike in this, particularly across... Um, southern argentina there are very few trees it's just open pampas so the first thing that these winds hit is you 
So you spend a lot of time leaning right over into the wind so the wind just doesn't flop you over on the other side. But then the gust will stop. So you're wrenching the bike back upright again and try not to tip over the other side. And then the gust will happen. So you're leaning it down and you just do hundreds of miles of these. And of course, all of that effort is pivoting on your lower spine. And yeah, well, um, the third disc started to go. Um, by the time we got to the Carotera Austral, which, by the way, is um, up with my favourite roads in the world. It's in southern Chile, and it's uh, a gravel road. Mm -hmm. And it's just through stunning scenery, absolutely awesome scenery. But um, the ferry between the islands and the mainland to get onto the Carotera Austral, just the rocking motion of the ferry started um, my disc um, going again and then the sliding around on the gravel, which large sections were um, a combination of fists and walnuts. So that meant that the bike was skipping and sliding around all over the place. And, of course, mm. that was all pivoting on my lower back. Wow. And it went wrong um, big time. And I ended up being um, medevaced back to the UK and being told that there was a 50% chance that I'd never walk again. Mm. I needed an operation. Um, well, my attitude to that was, um, okay, um, so what's the other option? And um, the option was um, positive thinking and physiotherapy, and I thought, well, I can do both of those. So let's see what happens. Right. Well, I'll tell you, speaking of someone who did have a similar back injury, uh, I can remember points. I'm an avid cyclist and, of course, a motorcyclist. Uh, there were a period of like three or four months where I could barely walk. Uh, but through mm. proper therapy and positive attitude, uh, it gets you back moving and it gets back to what you're doing. Oh, good stuff. I'm absolutely like-minded thinker. Um, I, I, it's amazing what you can do with positive thinking, isn't it? You can't heal all ailments, obviously, but um, my goodness, it's impressive what you can. That's it. Uh, because on. I'm a bit of a disaster magnet, I'm kind of <laughs> used to positive thinking. Right, now, with Distant Suns, that you started again in Africa, across uh, the Atlantic... Mm -hmm. And then you journeyed through South America up into Central America. Now, mm -hmm. because of your back injury, did at any point you and Burgett feel that your journey was going to be completely over? Um, Burgett feared it. I tried not to fear it. The doctors were, yeah, it's over. Um, I felt that I could get fit enough to compensate with the physio and so on and Birgit was very very supportive uh, during the three months that it took me to get fit enough to ride again Birgit walked with me on most of my walks and we were walking five six miles every day as well as the physiotherapy exercises and I think it was uh, a lot easier because she was with me keeping me company on all of those but we we were both smart enough to know that um, my back was never going to be strong enough to hurtle around um, the the harder dirt roads and things like that again. So we were going to have to tailor our trip according to um, what the countries needed from us and what I was able to do. So a change in riding style was was inevitable. Um, but it did impact your route then at that point. Yes, it did. Oh wow! Yeah, going up through South America, we had a route plans that was going to take us. Um, pretty much off-road for um, about 70% of the journey up. And I think, I mean, I never totaled this up, but I'm guessing that probably 75% of the road was on asphalt of some form or another. Mm -hmm. 
So as we got further north, we did, and, and I was getting fitter and, and so on, um, and my back was settling down a lot more. Then we started doing a lot more dirt roads, and it was a joy to get back on them. Oh, yeah. But, you know, j- even with the asphalt that we were riding, sometimes it was beat up, potholed, single lane, and it, that in itself was a challenge. And I was just really happy to be on the bike and continuing. So the fact that the original plans got thrown out of the window was um, not something that we dwelt on. Right. You know, I, I can so much relate that the wonderful feeling when you can resume doing the things that you could before because mm. your back is feeling better. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Isn't it bliss? <laughs> it's absolutely. I, throughout all three of the books, um, uh, Into Africa, uh, uh, Asian skies and, of course, distant suns. One of the common themes that seems to be going on is having patience and waiting. Mm. Uh, that seemed to be a common theme throughout all these adventures. How and what did you do with yourself while you were waiting? Okay. Um, <laughs> patience is something that keeps you out of trouble. Uh-huh. Um, patience is something that opens up all sorts of um, opportunities Um, there were plenty of times when things didn't work quickly Uh, the longest for example was three months waiting for my Iranian visa I did get it in the end Mm -hmm. but in the meantime um, while I was um, waiting because you know I had to go every Tuesday I had to go to the Iranian embassy and knock on the door and say um, any news yet and no sorry mister come back on Friday it always impressed me that the embassy was open on a Friday even though for them that was their main religious day but it was Um, and um, going in on the Friday oh no sorry mister come back on Tuesday so you can't actually ride that far away from the city of Delhi which is where all this was happening so I spent the time walking and exploring all over the city and I went into all sorts of back roads and got to know the market traders in some of the markets and just had lots of fun and learnt all sorts of new things about the city that I never would have done had I not been lumbered with having to wait. But I mean this particular instance um, was really important to me um, with what I do now. I think that people who get impatient on the road miss out on a shed load of possibilities and they raise their blood pressures without need. Um, But the Iran episode for me was where I wrote my first ever articles for a bike magazine. And this started um, sitting around the camping site, uh, campfire one night on a camping site, and we were all um, travellers there and we were all swapping stories. And one of the girls leant over to me after a while and she said, Sam, so many mad things happened to you, you should write some articles. And I was rubbish at English at school. I had no idea if I could, but I thought, hey, let's have a go. Um, So I wrote three articles and sent them off to every single magazine in the UK that I could think of and thought, oh, well, that was entertaining. It was nice to relive the memories. But to my amazement, one of the magazines got back to me and said, yeah, keep sending them. And um, I did very gently over the rest of the trip. And um, when I got back to the UK at the end of the trip, Um, the editor of this magazine um, phoned me and said, Sam, we're getting letters and emails from people all the time saying they like your articles and they want to know when your book's coming out. Well, what book? 
So what I do for a living now, um, sharing the fun and corrupting people, um, <laughs> would never have happened had I not got stuck on a camping site in Delhi waiting for a visa for Iran. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, during, uh, throughout the three books that I've uh, read so far, I, I think probably the, the section was when you were waiting for the boat to go from South Africa to South America, I felt more frustrated for you than you probably did. It it was um, a time of um, yeah it was a time of frustration and all sorts of things happened there but I I just don't think you can let the frustrations get in the way because if you do then you get angry um, the shutters come down you don't see the opportunities and you get negative about it and you'll remember that day when we're on the camping site in South Africa and I'm on the the, the payphone. Um, shoving money in and phoning all of the shipping agents who had been so kind and tried to get us on a cargo ship to South America and explaining to them that actually we'd spent so much money um, trying to get on a cargo ship that we weren't sure if we were going to have enough money to, left to make it up through South America. Well, actually, that's not strictly true. We knew that even if we had to pay for the passage, we would have enough money to get up through South and Central America. But if something went wrong, then we wouldn't have enough money to get ourselves out of that situation. And that was a big no-no for us. We decided that that wasn't a common sense thing. But anyway, my shutters were coming down and I was feeling pretty despondent about having to make these phone calls. And um, one of the final calls that we made, um, the agent said to us, said to me, well, have you thought about um, getting across on a cruise liner? <laughs> I recall that, yes. <laughs> and I just, oh, for goodness sake, have you not just listened to everything that I've said? We, there's no way we'll afford a cruise liner. And, well, new adventures started to roll from that moment wow. um, because even though my shutters were down, Birgit's weren't. Oh. <laughs> wow. So, little things come from little things. Oh, absolutely. Now, the, uh, at this point, Birgit had her own motorcycle at this point, correct? Mm, she did. Right. Um, Tell us about that. When we had traveled together in India and Nepal, we'd gone on so well, I said to her, look, I'm going to South America next. Uh, would you like to come with me? And with a few moments of hesitation, she then said, well, yes, but on two conditions. I want to go to Africa first. And that was how we ended up riding from um, Camp, uh, sorry, Mombasa down to um, Mombasa in Kenya down to Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to have my own bike. And I said to her, well, okay, if you can have your own bike, then you've got to learn how to service and maintain it. And a full-on saga happened with that. She um, had been riding a motorcycle for 600 miles the day we started riding together in Africa. She's absolutely awesome. Um, we cleared the bikes from the port ourselves because of wanting the experience. It's a, it's a whole new world that um, riding a motorcycle opens up for you that as a um, a holidaymaker or a backpacker you just don't get involved with the whole scene in ports and customs and all that sort of stuff it's fascinating back there but um, we got our bikes out right at the end of the day and um, cutting a long story short she ended up for us to get somewhere to stay um, she ended up doing her first um, ride on dirt in Africa in the dark and um, she was absolutely <laughs> awesome at it and um, by the time we got down to southern Africa this 600 mile experienced girl was riding better off-road than I was wow <laughs> now, yeah, she's now, brilliant now, now Burgett's bike was much older than yours and seemed to be a mishmash of all different types of bikes put together uh, mm. now that created an adventure in motorcycle maintenance for both of you 
Yeah, yeah it really did. Uh, Birgit's bike was called um, Sir Henry the Hybrid. Yes. Um, when, when we found him, he was um, a rusting heap of 1971 BMW R60-5 um, under a tree, covered in um, leaves and um, just filth. And when I said to her, look, um, if you're going to um, come on your own bike, then you've got to service and maintain it. She took that literally. And she bought this beat-up bike. Um, it, first reason was that she could get her feet on the ground with it. Right. It was a road bike, not an off-road bike. And that five foot and a, um, and a half, then getting her feet on the ground was important. Um, she chose a BMW because the only experience I'd got with mechanicing was with a BMW. So this was the closest we could find. Right. Um, and she stripped it down and put it back together again with a mechanic so that she could learn how the thing worked. Okay. And this was really important for her, particularly with that lack of knowledge, because when she was riding the bike and she heard something, then she would have a clue, oh, this is a dangerous noise, we need to stop and check this out, or, no, that's fine, it, the bike's just talking to me. Um, and so that was that was very good for her to learn um, all of that sort of thing. Now, so now, did uh, the maintenance add to your daily stress because she is a new rider and or did that just add to the enjoyment of the whole thing it didn't add to the stress it was just part of being on the road um dealing with shaft bikes was always much better than dealing with bikes with chains because you know we'd roll onto a camping site or for example and um, while we'd be um, putting a brew on for a cup of tea um, anybody else who was uh, riding with a bike with a chain they were having to service and maintain their chains um, shaft drive meant that we didn't have to do that um, so that sort of thing but um, I mean we always did uh, very regular servicing on the bikes and we did that at half distances because we were making the bikes work really hard yeah. and a lot of the places we were riding were very hot and very dusty and very potholed and we thought if we do the servicing at half distances then um, our kindness hopefully will be repaid and actually it, it it was. Uh, Birgit's bike was much difficult, more difficult to deal with, though, because it was a hybrid, as in it was made up with all sorts of different uh, parts from different BMWs. Um, long story behind that. Um, <laughs> but it didn't make life much easier when we wanted to get spare parts, because um, after a while, she couldn't remember exactly what part what had come from what bike. Um, I was still travelling while she was doing the final stages of this, and it wouldn't—it didn't occur to me either that you know each new part or different part she needed to make a note of which bike it came from, so that we could get the right spare parts. So that did cause us a problem um, from time to time. Yeah. But I mean, by the time we got to to the, the north of South America, both bikes were very much showing their age. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you that uh, now of all these three journeys that's up to this point. Uh, through Africa, Asia, and of course now South America. Which do you think was the most challenging when it came to the riding, and how did you and Birgit manage with that? God, you know, each 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 continent, each area of each continent gives you completely different sets of challenges, and so I don't think there was any particular one that was harder, um, just more different. Um, and I think that for me, that's I th actually I think for both of us, that's that's part of the buzz of overlanding. The fact that every day when you wake up, you don't really know what you're going to come across, um, conditions-wise, um, 
and and that's part of the buzz you know your senses fire on all cylinders when you're overlanding you're fully awake and because you're out there in it being on a motorcycle um, all motorcyclists know this you smell everything you feel the temperature changes and and i just think that's one of the reasons that most of us are addicted to it absolutely um now your latest book uh totilas and totems uh which is not available on audiobook yet so no no uh and you have to do that <laughs> well i would like to um, <laughs> okay. the first audiobook uh, was a huge gamble um i'd been watching the audiobook market for quite a long time and i really wanted to do um put into africa and into audiobook format but when I first started looking at it, it was in the days where everything was on CDs and um, Into Africa would have been 10 CDs. And then there was all of the, the business of um, the cases and the graphic design and then um, somebody who's not with a mainstream publishing house having to knock on all of the retailers' doors and saying, how about it, etc., etc. And the whole thing was way too daunting. But the key thing that got me was that I couldn't find a studio that would let me narrate the books and I didn't want somebody else to narrate into Africa because I thought I know when I'm scared witless I know when something just superbly wonderful has happened and nobody else can replicate the feelings that I am going to get when I'm reading this loud and so that just put me off but um, I was very lucky in that I found a recording studio whose managing director uh, was a motorcyclist and by sheer luck he had read Into Africa and liked it this is Kite Studio in Cambridge in the UK Mm -hmm. and um, he said yeah okay look come in and record the first chapter if you're absolutely rubbish at it, well, then I'll tell you, and you'll know, you'll have tried, and you can decide what you want to do next. And I couldn't, I was blown away by this opportunity because it was the first foot in the door that I'd, I'd managed to make happen. Right. And um, at the end of it, he said, Actually, that's not too bad. Um, uh, okay, we'll record the rest of the chapters. But if at any time you're failing, because one of the hardest things about recording a, um, an audio book is that you can be recording for a week and a half and keeping your voice yes. sounding right and the motivation when you're stuck in a tiny little cubicle, you and um, a chair and a lectern and headphones and a, a microphone is, um, is quite hard. So you can see why it's a, a job for professionals. But um, the studio were very gentle with me and very encouraging. Uh, I thought you did a fantastic job. I really did. I was actually engaged in everything you were telling everybody. Uh, it was just wonderful. I really enjoyed it. But Thank you. It, it's quite all right. Now, the, now this book, uh, Tortillas and Totems, which is the most recent one, this mm. signifies sort of like the nearing of the end of this amazing motorcycle adventure. Now, when you entered North America, was there a huge sigh of relief stemming from the different type of travel conditions that you've been experiencing? No, completely opposite. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't looking forward to going uh, north of Mexico. Uh, I thought uh, heading into the United States, it was going to be too easy, too expensive, too brash. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with any of those things after um, six and a half years in developing world countries. But Birgit wanted to go to Alaska. And hey, when you're riding with a partner, you compromise and you sure. change your plans accordingly and um, you adapt. And so we headed into the United States. Um, and 
you know, for once I was feeling very uneasy about having to deal with the new set of challenges that were facing us. I wasn't sure how I was going to cope. Um, I, I thought it was going to be too easy, for example. And that bothered me because part of the fun of overlanding was all the challenges that right. we were constantly facing. So, so Bridget was with you through North America, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess this is where you experienced your culture shock. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about that? Well, for example, first day in the United States, rolling into a, um, a gas station, there were 27 options to pay by credit card, but no option to pay by cash. <laughs> And that hit us in two ways. One, we made sure we had cash because that's what you do when you're um, overlanding. And we had a couple of credit cards. But after the travel in South America, we were very nervous about using them and sticking them in machines or handing them over behind counters where you didn't know what somebody was going to be doing with your card when you weren't looking at it. So um, now, to somebody who's used to just using a credit card quite normally and the trust that goes in with it, that was you know that's fine and that's the way we are and the way we subsequently became it was it was just the way it was and there was no real difficulty with it but coming over the border um, heading north from countries where it was our mindset was oh gosh our credit card went out of sight what's this guy done with it so you know that was the first thing but it was also things like seeing girls in g-strings rollerblading on a pavement in a town now we come from South America, where except in you know, in in very touristy resorts, you didn't see that sort of thing, um, or even close to it. You certainly didn't see people rollerblading right. on on a, on a city street wearing almost nothing. So there were all sorts of culture shocks going on. But the one I think that got to us the most was going into a supermarket. Oh. Now for years we'd been travelling mostly in countries where. If you were very, very lucky, you might get two choices of tuna fish, two choices of shampoo, two choices of bar of soap, um, three types of cereal, um, that sort of thing. So suddenly to go into a supermarket and have 17 different types of breakfast cereal and 14 different types of tuna fish and, and that sort of stuff. I, I'll never forget, uh, the first one we went into, we'd been in for about 10 minutes and Birgit started to look very edgy and she looked at me and her eyes were wide and she said... I think I need to leave. I'm not sure if I can cope with this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, did you so, me- did you meander around the U.S., uh, nor- you know, North America, or did you simply just, like, shoot right through the uh, United States? No, we definitely meandered. Um, that's a very good way to d- describe our style of travel. Good. Um, we make a sort of rough plan, mm-hmm. and we know how much money we've got budget-wise. We have roughly worked out how much it's going to cost us to travel in a place, and we have an idea about um, the length of the visa and whether it's re- renewable, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we have our rough plan of places that we would like to see, and we head in those directions and then take advantage of opportunities that come up along the way and for us that's one of the beauties of traveling by motorcycle it's all of those side tracks that you don't know exist until you're there and you can ride on past them but some of the best adventures are those things down those side tracks and so that's how we travel we meander an awful lot sometimes we don't see the things that we thought we would be interested in seeing but that's through choice not because we're ignorant that they exist 
Yeah. Um, oh, we meet overlanders who never go to places that um, are well-developed touristy spaces. But we, our attitude is, well, hey, they've become famous for visitors because there's something interesting there to see. So mm-hmm. we're not averse to going to those places. But like I said, sometimes we just don't make it. So we meander a lot. Um, we came up into California and then we headed across um, the south of the United States, um, then cut up towards Denver and then back across to the west coast and headed up through northern California and Oregon and Washington and up into Canada and then on up towards Alaska. Wow. Now, did you encounter uh, many other motorcyclists along your trip through the United States? Motorcyclists, yes. And one of the things that made me in particular feel um, much faster at home in the United States. And by the way, you know, I painted um, quite a a negative picture. And when people read Sortius to Totems, um, I have had this feedback that people are, God, listen to him, he's slagging off the United States, but this is where I live. But um, people need to know that when you're a traveller and you're writing about um, your journey, then you have to be honest. You have to write about the things that you see, the experiences that you have. But you also have to write about how the thoughts change because of the influences. And one of the things that changed me quite dramatically was the other motorcyclists that we met. Um, the complete amazing camaraderie and the friendship and the waving and just the ice-breaking that our bikes did for us was absolutely phenomenal. And it was one of the reasons that we grew to love um, traveling in the USA. Wow, that's great. Now, uh, at this point, how were your motorcycles performing (laughs) at this point? Um, They were old. By this time, my bike had, I don't know, getting on for 190,000 miles on it. Wow. Um, and Birgit's bike, we had no idea. It had had seven owners before she had it, so we had no idea how many miles he ha- she had on it. She spent the, um, the time, the last weeks in Colombia and up through Central America and Mexico with, um, oh, and the first month or two in the United States with a real problem with Sir Henry. He was blowing um, points and condensers. Um, so for a 1971 bike, of course, it's got points and condensers sure. rather than an electronic sure. ignition. And we could not work out why this was happening. Um, we'd stopped off at various different types of mechanics, including BMW mechanics, but people just weren't used to dealing with a bike of this age. Mm-hmm. And um, there was no consistency. It wasn't to do with temperature. It wasn't to do with terrain. Um, and sometimes we would pop a set of condensers uh, points in 50 miles. Wow. So this was becoming a real issue. <laughs> we, we laughed over a few beers one night that we were actually keeping the points and condensers industry of the world alive <laughs> with the number that this bike was eating. Um, but we ended up um, linking up with a guy called Chris Canterbury who was um, over in California. And um, Chris listened to the problem, um, expert BMW mechanic, and... Um, he said, yeah, I think I know what that was. Um, he went out the back, came back with um, a second-hand backing plate mm-hmm. for um, the points and condensers, and that's what it was. The backing plate had warped, and as soon as he put that on, the bike stopped eating points and condensers. Oh, okay. So, you know, that was one of the things that happened with Birgit's bike. But with my bike, um, yeah, it was just general wear and tear, except for one thing in Mexico. Um, on the first day in Mexico, we didn't know about topes or speed bumps. 
and we didn't know how vicious these things can be and we didn't know that they're frequently hidden in shadow and not marked and they can be all sorts of different heights and we went over one and this one was about 12 inches high wow. I didn't see it, just went straight over it and I was very, very lucky to stay on the bike um, I absolutely hammered it and um, from that time onwards I was leaking air out of my shock and by the time we got to the United States I was riding on the spring only oh. and, um, I didn't know it um, because, because it was a fairly gradual thing I was just right. thinking well you know the bike's getting old and blah de blah <laughs> and my goodness when that was diagnosed and put to right talk about breath of fresh air new lease of life or, or what uh, yeah it was, it was magic point was there any uh, I realized this was one of the questions I had previously asked you about but mm. um, was there any what stood out as far as it goes for sites that you may have seen or people you may have met in North America Mexico and the United States and of course Canada was there any particular site that struck you mostly cool how many hours have we got <laughs> um, it was just want. one constant flow. I mean, Mexico, we loved going around um, the various different um, uh, historical sites. I think my favorite in Mexico was uh, Palenque. Mm -hmm. um, we loved camping on the beach um, over on the east coast uh, in the Yucatan. Uh, we found this magic little spot where um, we just were camping underneath the trees right on the beach and um, no electricity, no water, and it was brilliant. Um, in the United States, God, you know, one of the things that blew me away about the States was that further south, um, a lot of the time you had one choice of road to get to where you wanted to go. And it was either um, asphalt, um, beaten up badly, potholed asphalt, gravel, or a mix of everything. Um, but in the United States, we suddenly found that we could do freeway or we could do um, state roads or we could do tiny little back roads or we could do gravel or wherever we wanted to go, there was a choice of things, of ways that we could get there. And this just suddenly um, gave us um, an air of freedom that we hadn't had anywhere else. Wow. Um, well, not since Australia. And, and that was just... Yeah, that was magic. And it, it got us to so many different places yeah. that um, we perhaps wouldn't have got to because we had the freedom of choice. But I love the Rockies, for example. I, yeah. I love that. And the Sierra Nevada, uh, we really, really enjoyed riding those. And, you know, the following the coast roads up through Northern California. Um, yeah, I, I could go on. <laughs> now, this is this at this particular point, this is you're getting close to the end. When did you realize that this seemingly lifelong and fantastic journey is coming to an end or did it actually end? Um, the last six months, perhaps, of the trip, I started to have this very annoying voice in the back of my mind telling me that it was going to come to an end before too long. And this had become a way of life by this time. Uh, actually ended up being on the road for nearly eight and a half years. Jeez, and um, it, it is a way of life. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back to my old way of life, which was um, the career path and the mortgage and all of those sorts of things. I wasn't sure if the round peg that I had become was going to fit back into the square hole that I'd been in before. Um, and I started to get really concerned about it. It wasn't a pleasant thought. And, but the other thing that was going through my mind was, I've learned a lot 
over all of these years of travel, I've learned about people and about customs and cultures and riding and all sorts of things. What am I going to do with this knowledge? Yeah. And th that combination of thought just kept on um, popping up, but getting closer and closer um, and more and more in my mind as we drew towards New York and uh, the end of the trip. And, um, yeah, it was getting on the plane to, to fly back to the UK from New York was a sensation of um, um, the bottom having dropped out of my stomach, right. but also um, the fun of being on a on a jetliner. We hadn't done that for a while. Wow. And um, just just the complete new experience of being on a Virgin Atlantic plane with um, free plastic ducks given to each passenger and just <laughs> other mad stuff like that. Now, were you feeling melancholy at this point? Um, I was, but I'm a great believer that things work out if you've got an open mind and if you're prepared to try new things. And I had no idea where life was going to take me next, but I knew that if I kept my mind open and my eyes open, then something would pop up which would be the right thing. And I knew not to let myself rush into something because I felt it was something that I ought to be doing. And um, that's exactly how it worked. Um, when we arrived back in the UK, we were offered a job renovating semi-derelict houses, and we did that for the first two years that we were back. Um, we lived in the houses we were working on, so no rent and no commuting costs. Mm -hmm. And we pretty much had the freedom to work the hours that we wanted to work, which actually didn't work out very well because <laughs> we sort of got up at 6 o'clock and worked until 10 most days. But on the days when it was a beautiful sunny day, then we'd bunk off and go and sit in a wonderful old English pub or ride down to the coast for half a day, that sort of thing. So we had the freedom, and that was such an important thing, not to end a trip like this and suddenly go back to 9 or nine till 5. That would have driven um, me completely dotty. Oh, I can imagine. After 8-plus years of doing what you were doing uh one of the things that stood out to me uh throughout all the books that i have currently listened to is that the people that you encountered on the all these journeys seem to be maybe mostly the focal point uh of of the of your stories now has that uh, impacted you and uh of those people does anybody stand out in particular i like people <laughs> well that's a good thing um, it, wherever you go, you're constantly coming across good people. I have a real problem with mainstream media because it spends so much time painting doom and gloom pictures about somebody who lives in another country and has a different way of life and perhaps oh, yeah. a different religion or a different skin color. And they're just constantly building the fear factor about other people. And when you're traveling, yeah, okay, do you know, we're human beings, and that means that a percentage are going to be bad people. But I reckon that that's probably around 3%, and the rest of the people are either great fun um, or just not so good on odd days. But the odds are very much in the favor of whoever you talk to being an interesting, um, good person. And traveling teaches you this. And um, I, I just really enjoy being around people. And what better way to learn about a country than to spend some time with somebody who lives there? It was one of the reasons that I like working as I'm going, because then you're working alongside people who live, eat, sleep and breathe the place. And there is no better way to find out. Oh, wow. 
I, it's, it's just amazing. You must, you must have met thousands and thousands of people. Does, is would you say that uh, the the people uh, with, without meeting um, the people that you have met uh, would that have impacted the enjoyment of the trip any more or less? I worry for people who are too afraid of the people that they meet or are too afraid of making fools of themselves because those people spend an awful lot of time traveling around the world and seeing the sights but not getting beneath the skin of a country and not appreciating the warmth of human nature um it's a very good attitude people are great and every time you meet somebody they've they've got a story to tell and they're a character and you can have so many funny times oh, sure. because of the people that you meet and one story leaps straight into my mind in africa bargaining for um papaya and in um central africa the papayas are huge you know they can be a foot and a half long mm-hmm. And it's my favorite fruit. It's also one of the most interesting fruits, but that's another story. Um, it's, and I love the taste of this. So because I was traveling on a budget and I was always very careful with my budget, I used to bargain for food in the markets. And the first thing I did when I went into a new country was I would get to know to somebody and um, get to know someone and I would have a list of all of the standard things that I like to eat that I knew I would need to buy but also a list of the fruits and vegetables that I knew were new in the country that I was coming to. And with this person, we'd work out what the locals would pay. Now, I was expected that um, I would pay um, a price somewhere between local price and tourist price. Tourists tend to be in a hurry. Um, Travellers have more time to get involved with bargaining and so on. So I bargained, and what I could buy in a supermarket at home in half an hour might take me two days of bargaining fun Um, in whatever country that I was in. And this particular day, there's Mama, and um, she's sitting cross-legged on the floor on this brightly coloured cloth and spread out around her and in front of her um, bananas and papayas and oranges and mangoes and all sorts of magic fruit, all completely lush because they've literally just come from the trees. And um, I knew how much I should pay for papaya, and I'd also wandered around the market a little bit and watched the the locals bargaining and seen how much they were paying for them. So Mama and I started bargaining away for um, this papaya, and the price that she gave me was just absolutely ridiculous. So I gave her a price just above the local person price, and she was scandalized. And mm-hmm. It's all play-acting, and of if course. you do it with, with a smile and some fun, you know, you can dick her backwards and forwards, and you can have a lot of fun. And we ended up with um, getting around a, a sensible price for her and a sensible price for me, but she just dug her heels in then. <laughs> and um, eventually she said, Ha! I have a husband and five children to feed, and you only want to pay me this. And I said, Mama... I have five wives and a child to feed and I can't pay more than this. <laughs> and it was sort of silence for a moment and then she cracked up and we had an audience and everybody else cracked up laughing as well and then Mama said, ha, for five wives you will need much strength. You must take this. <laughs> of course I paid her for it. But, you know, that's part of the fun that you can have with people and with taking your time to, to, to get to know how things are done. Everybody seemed pretty... Uh eager and welcoming to help you if you needed help and much of the time they didn't really ask for anything in return was that a common uh, thread 
very, very rarely. I didn't pay a bribe anywhere in the world. I did have a few times where um, I was asked for bribes and, or it was made perfectly obvious. Um, but, you know, there are many ways that you can get out of paying a bribe. And part of first of all is, is starting off with the right attitude. Yeah. Um, for example, border crossings, they're something that people fear. I don't. I really enjoy border crossings because they're brilliant people-watching opportunities and they're always tales of the unexpected. And one of the first things you do is make darn sure that all of your paperwork is, is in order and that you know what paperwork you're going to need. And that sounds complicated, but no, it's not. Because when you get your visa from uh, the embassy of the country that you're coming to, um, you ask what paperwork do I need for this for your country? And they tell you. Oh, okay. um, so you can arrive at the border pretty well organized. Now, some of these guys, they live on bribery. They don't get um, much money, um, but um, it's the money that they make with bribes that, yeah. that keeps them topped up. Um, but I don't think bribery is a good idea. Um, I think Ooh. it's corruption, and I have a real problem with that. But I treat people with respect and um, I'm always open to having a laugh and a joke and very quickly the bribery request disappears because you're treating the people with respect and as people and they quite often don't get that. But I did, I did notice in, in your books that many of the people that you encountered were very willing to help you if you needed help. Mm. Yeah. I, for example, at a border, um, the first thing I do is I walk around to the people who are wearing uniforms or look as if they've got positions of authority and I shake them by the hand and I smile and say hello and I ask which is the way to and can you tell me which office I need for that and because I've, I've, I've shaken them by the hand and smiled and said hello in their language because I always try to learn um, how to say hello, please, and thank you of the language in the country that I'm coming to. It's amazing the ice that breaks, that bit of respect. And people then want to show you around because mostly people are good, and if we treat anybody with respect, then we get it back. That's true. Absolutely. So all tall, beginning to end, how many years were you traveling? Eight and a half. Mm, I only planned to be away for a year, but I got a bit carried away. <laughs> you planned for a year? <laughs> well, it was just going to be the length of Africa. Do you know, when I started, I didn't even know if I liked riding a motorcycle. And traveling across Europe, um, I felt like some sort of motorcycling accessory hanging onto the back of the bike. And it was telling me what to do. Um, I really shouldn't have been out, allowed out on this thing. But fortunately, I didn't have too big a mishap. But um, by the time I'd got down to the bottom of Africa, I was having such a ball and thoroughly enjoying all of the the opportunities that it was opening up to me. I just could not see a good reason to go home. And I'd spent far less money than I thought I was going to. Um, So, yeah, just, yeah, let's keep going. See see how much longer I'm enjoying it. (laughs) So, which brings me to, how does one financially prepare for this? Because I know a lot of our listeners are going to go like, I would love to do that, but... I couldn't afford to do that. So how does that work? Okay. Well, first I need to say how it worked for me, um, and then um, how I can say how I've done it with previous trips. This particular trip, um, I sold everything I'd got. My house, car, furniture, clothes, TV, everything I could sell, I sold, except for six small cardboard boxes, which were full of survival kit for when I got home. You know, a suit and shirt and tie and a pair of shoes for interview and my favourite books and CDs and and that sort of stuff, photographs from previous trips, things that I really, really didn't want to get rid of. But everything else I sold. Um, And that was how I paid to do the trip. 
I sold everything because um, I was such a novice and I didn't have any friends who were bikers, so I didn't have, have anybody who would be able to tell me how often the bike was going to break down and how much it was going to cost me to repair and how many tyres I was going to go through and all of those sorts of things. And I thought, you know, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And if you get halfway down Africa and you've used up all of your savings and you're having an absolute ball, that's going to suck big time because... Actually, you're going to want to continue, but you're going to have to turn around and go home. And right. that could be, yeah, the only time you could ever get the chance to do it. So why don't I sell everything? And if I get halfway down and I'm having a ball, then I can carry on. And if I get halfway down and I'm really not enjoying it, then I can go home. And I've only been on the road for six months, so I've still got most of my money and I can start again. And it was such a good decision to do that for me with this particular trip. Um, because hey look what happened next yeah exactly um previous trips it's been a case of saving yeah. not going out don't buying not buying new things um not drinking booze buying second hand kit or making it if i can um and don't buying gear unless i'm absolutely certain that i'm going to need it and thinking about what kit that i'm buying and never buying anything unless it has at least two uses oh, well okay that's a bit of an exaggeration but <laughs> what i mean for example is i need a new ground sheet to go underneath my tent and i've got to have a ground sheet because that is what's going to protect the, the tent inner lining from stone sharp stones and thorns okay so i've got to carry a ground sheet two uses actually i can make this ground sheet have three uses i can get myself um, a ground sheet that is made of solid surface not something that's woven so if i get stuck in the desert i can um, and i'm running out of water or i break down and i, I need to try and survive i can make myself a, sto a solar still out of it I can also triple it up as making a shelter to hang off the side of the bike so that I can give myself shade. So everything I went through um, kit-wise, um, I tried to find at least two uses for it. Um, even a pair of socks, you know. Socks have got two uses. Yeah, you wear them on the end of your feet, but you can also use them for filtering fuel in dodgy places so you're not pumping <laughs> thieves and grit in your tank. Just don't put them on your feet when you're done, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. No, too right. So a lot of it is really just don't spend money. Yeah. Um, save. It's incredible how quickly you can get stuff, get money together by just not spending anything. Oh, sure. <laughs> a lesson for all of us, right? <laughs> so are you done with Worldwide Travels, or is there some place that you haven't seen yet? <laughs> um, there are 195 countries in this world, um, so there's still 140 that I haven't been to. <laughs> okay. So I take that as a no, you're not done. <laughs> the only two people you know that have been to every single country in the world, except for one, because that wasn't in existence when they were traveling around the world, are a couple of Australians, um, Peter and Kay Forward, and um, they travel to every single country in the world with their motorcycle, um, and the motorcycle was a Harley Davidson. Oh, really? Mm. How about that? Mm, exactly. No one ever um, had long conversations with Peter about this, you know, ground clearance and all that sort of stuff and riding muddy roads. And he said, um, sometimes you're just using the, foot, the footboards to skid over the, so the surface of the muddy road. And because the ground clearance is not particularly huge, then um, you've got less distance to fall over and you know, just all sorts of things. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they proved that you can actually go round the worlding on anything. So long as you like riding it and so long as it's in good mechanical order. That's right. Now, are you, will you continue uh, and do you continue to travel by motorcycle now? 
Yes, I do. It's do? Um, it's mm, I, my bike is my only means of transport. We did two hundred thousand miles over the eight and a bit years that um, we were on the road together, um, and she's got two hundred eighty-three thousand miles on her now. So you're uh, still riding the same motorcycle? Mm-hmm. Yep. Really? Yep, she's the only means of transport that I've got. Well, unless you count a bicycle, I do own a bicycle as well. <laughs> no plans of buying of getting a new motorcycle. Gosh, do you know, I look at some bikes, and just recently I've been on a seven-week trip in the States on um, an F800 GS. Al Jesse from Jesse Luggage uh, okay. lent it to me, and um, I found this bike it, incredible. It was an absolute dream to ride. Al had done a fair bit of work on it, so he'd remapped it, and of course it had Jesse Luggage on it, and he'd updated the, the suspension and that sort of stuff. But this bike was a dream, and I was riding it thinking, hmm... <laughs> Should I have one of these? Oh, this is nice. But then I thought, yeah, but Libby, um, that's my bike's name. It's short yeah. for Liberty because that's what she gives me. Okay. Libby's doing absolutely fine. Um, so I don't need another bike. <laughs> now, is Burgess still with you? Oh, absolutely. Okay. She's, t- she's too sane to marry me, though. <laughs> now, it, it, please tell me she's still not riding uh, Sir Henry. <laughs> no, she's not. Um <laughs> She found um, back in the UK that um, Sir Henry's uh, brakes were too unreliable. Hey, it's an old bike with a very old braking system, and we never, ever managed to get the brakes to work properly on this bike. And she found that with the intensity and the speed of UK traffic, um, she had to leave herself good-sized gaps between herself and the vehicle in front, but always people were ducking into that gap. And she started to find it actually quite scary. So she has a new bike, um, a 1984 BMW R80 ST. Wow, there you go. <laughs> and this, this bike is a dream to ride. It's probably the bike that she would have been better off um, on the trip with. It's, um, it's got a longer wheelbase and it's, it's brakes work. Well, now that she's got a new bike, a newer bike, I, I think it's time that you two head out again. Mm. <laughs> we do a lot of shorter trips. Um, we try and get away for at least a month every year and um, do a lot of shorter trips in between that time. Um, I write quite a lot of magazine articles um, from the point of people who live in the real world with responsibilities, and that is most people can't get away for uh, more than a two-week holiday. Some people can get away um, for a month. So uh, what can you do if you can get away for three weeks to a month. And so, for example, um, we wrote um, articles about riding in Vietnam, uh, which is something that is very easy to do, a real exotic adventure that you can have on two wheels. And, you know, various other short trips that we've done, Norway and um, parts of Europe and so on. Um, so we do a lot of shorter trips so that we can write those articles because there is no reason that somebody who is taking their responsibility seriously and has um, a full-time job and family, etc., um, can't go off and have um, a great fun overlanding adventure in the time that they've got. So we're doing that. But um, I'm bouncing around I'm traveling a lot more on my own because Birgit has a proper job. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I've got this uh, seven-week trip that I've just had in the States, and I'm back over to the States again for September and half of October. I'm doing a a series of presentations in um, Southern California, Arizona, and North Carolina. Um, So um, can I mention where I'm going to be on those? Absolutely. Go right ahead. Tell us where you're going to be. Um, The first one is at um, Irv Siva BMW in Orange, California. Then I'll be at San Jose BMW in... um, 
hey, San Jose. Then I'm going to Horizons Unlimited California, which is up in Mariposa, which is near uh, Yosemite. And then I'm going to be at GoAZ in Phoenix. And then Overland Expo in um, Northern Carolina at the Biltmore Estate. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to being back in the States. Wonderful. Uh, I have a lot of fun um, traveling there. If you are in the New York, New Jersey area, by all means, look me up and uh, maybe we can have lunch. That'd be ah, great. <laughs> fantastic. I, I really would like to get over to um, the northeast of the States. I'd actually planned to do that this time, but um, some great people were approaching me after the last trip and would I come back to California? Oh, yeah, okay. That's hard. <laughs> Well, uh, again, I'm here with uh, Sam Manicom, uh, author of Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, uh, Distant Suns, and now uh, the Tortillas and Totems. Uh, this is the account of uh, trips through Africa, Asia, uh, through South America, and up and through the United States and Canada. Uh, Sam, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on Motorcycle Men. Uh, it's been an absolute honor and absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've really enjoyed um, being with you, Ted, and um, the questions you've asked have been spot on. Um, yeah, I probably talk too much, but I'm pretty famous for that. <laughs> it's quite all right. Absolutely, 100% enjoyed it. Uh, again, uh, please look up his books. You can check them out on uh, audible.com. You can also, uh, of course, go to your local bookstore and just check these books out, too. Uh, now, is Tortillas and Totems going to be available in audiobook anytime soon? Um, I'm hoping next year. Um, the, the the thing with the audiobooks is the studio time is expensive and I have to pay for uh, the studio time before I can um, go on to the, the next one. And it takes, um, well, the last few, the first into Africa because motorcycle over, overlanding audiobooks were virtually unheard of then. Um, it took me two years to cover the cost. Wow. Uh, so it's a gentle process, but it's good fun. And, do you know, one of the reasons that I did the books, um, uh, I'm doing the books as audio books, is because of the number of people that I read, meet that say, I'm too busy to read a book, or I have such long commutes. Yeah. But also the number of motorcyclists that I meet who are dyslexic. And one of the reasons that they're motorcyclists is because it's a hobby that they can do and not feel disadvantaged. Oh, wow. And the thought of being able to share um, the world or my view of the world and the <laughs> mad things that happen um, with people who just really struggle to read, read books, which has been a real, a real pleasure. Um, I, I found uh, listening to your books, uh, while I, of course, while I drive, of course, or when I'm on the bike, uh, I also mm -hmm. listen to them. But also when I'm working, uh, mm -hmm. well, I have a farm. Uh, when I'm on the farm doing some work, I'll, I'll have the audio book on. I'll be listening to it. And it's, it's, it, it, it engages me. It really kind of takes my mind off of what I'm doing. And just uh, I, get become, I feel like I'm becoming a part of the story. It, it, wonderful. And I absolutely look forward to your latest book coming out, an audio book. Uh, I will give you a shout when it is. May I just mention something sure. for um, North American readers? Uh, or listen, sorry. Um, my books are not so easy to get hold of from Amazon.com. They are available, but um, they're not so easy. Um, if they're finding it hard from Amazon.com, then there's um, an organization called the Book Depository. Okay. And they do free worldwide delivery. So uh, that may end up being um, a better bet. And, of course, many people listen to um, e-books nowadays, and all my books are on Kindle as well. So okay. um, they're from Amazon. And they can also go to your website, which is sam-manicom.com, uh, sam 
Uh, yep. And you can check out everything in there. And, and I believe on your website there's also a, a listing of your dates and where you're appearing, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's you can right. Check that out. Um, Again, once again, Sam, thank you very much for joining me here on Motorcycle Man. Everybody, please go out there and check out Sam's books. They're actually fantastic, and I, it'd be, it, you would definitely benefit from listening to them. Again, Sam, thank you very much for joining me. I, absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the Motorcycle Man, visit our website at www.motorcyclemen.us. There, you can join our mailing list or leave a comment and maybe give us some feedback. We always welcome your thoughts. If you'd like to email the Motorcycle Men directly, email to motomenpc at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Links for each of them are on our website. If you'd like to talk to us directly and tell us about your ride, you can do that via Skype. Our Skype name is motomenpc. And if you find yourself doing nothing on a Tuesday night between 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, check in with us and we'll make you part of the show. If you're a good guest, we just might send you some stuff.